Welcome to Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 13. Today we have Sawyer Millier, who is an ISO 27001 expert. He's a practice leader for ISO here at Risk 360. And today we're going to talk about 10 tips uh, that you might benefit from knowing if you want to pursue ISO 27001 certification. Welcome, Sawyer. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, Christian? Doing good. So there's a lot of myths, a lot of information when it comes to getting ISO certified. I think generally people are at least somewhat familiar with the framework, but probably less familiar with the certification process. So I wrote down 10 things that come up all the time with our clients when it comes to getting ISO certified and thought it'd be great just to kind of walk through those with you and, and get some information. So the first one is around uh, scoping ISO 27001. It, it's come up a ton with our clients and I think clients tend to think that um, the certification scope has to include the entire organization, but in reality it doesn't. So can you talk about some of the scoping conversations that you have with the auditor and how, how people can think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, scoping really takes shape based on what the stakeholders interested in your certification care about. So what I mean is like a lot of times we're getting certified because we have clients or prospects who have asked for that and they want to see that to gain a certain level of comfort with your security posture. Um, and so they're going to care most about things like the product that you deliver to them if you're mm -hmm. a SaaS company, the service you provide if you're a services company. Um, things they're not typically going to care about would be like maybe your marketing processes, right? Like they're not necessarily going to care that you're keeping your marketing information secure because they're just not genuinely interested in, in uh, whether or not that's the case. So that might be something you'd scope out. Um, sales processes, right? They, they care that, you know, they're treated well during a sales process, but they don't necessarily care that your sales processes adhere to ISO 27001. So we typically talk to clients to make sure that they include the appropriate level of um, departments and functions in the business um, to make sure their stakeholders are going to have that level of confidence they're looking for when they're handed that certificate at the end of the process. Uh, but that is not, it's, not, it's not including, um, I guess, like superfluous uh, departments and processes in the business. Yeah, I think that's counterintuitive to security pros because when you think about a security program, it naturally includes the entirety of the organization. But when it comes to getting a certification, you're really only focused in on what you know the clients that you're getting the certification for care about. So one of the techniques that we talk about is, hey, you can implement ISO 27001 across the whole organization, but maybe you want to only subject your organization to the audit burden of achieving certification over a very specific scope. So scope can include things like uh, the locations in scope. So you, maybe you want to narrow down the locations. Uh, it can include things like the products. So maybe you only want to get certified the products that your clients really care about and they need to show certification for. Same thing with people, like you already mentioned. Maybe you de-scope um, part of the organization or certain departments, but include things like engineering and customer success that maybe impacts customers. Um, the scope also impacts the audit effort because ISO is governed by this organization called ANAB and one of the magic formulas that they have that dictates the number of required audit days that the external auditor has to um, subject you to is based on the complexity of the system. So the, the less complex uh, an organization's scope, the fewer audit days that are required. So that can impact obviously the, the burden and perhaps even the cost. So think carefully about scope as you go into the certification. Um, second thing I wanted to talk about was 
Um, I think when people think of ISO, they're very familiar with the controls, which is called Annex A. There's 114 controls, but they're less familiar with um, the ISMS and the overarching governance structure that is required when it comes to ISO 27001. So two things, can you talk a little bit about what is an ISMS and then also what is the IRC that governs the ISMS? Yeah, absolutely. So the ISMS is, uh, stands for the Information Security Management System. It's basically the um, framework or the scaffolding that the entire program is built upon. So if you look at ISO 27001, which if, if you don't know is a document you can go out on the internet, pay for and download, um, you can see what they call clauses 4 through 10, which lays out the foundational elements of um, really ISO 27001. And that's what we refer to as the ISMS. It's the management system that the rest of the program is built on. I mean, if you look at any other ISO standard, you know, um, 9001, for instance, a quality management system. You'll notice that management system is a consistent uh, theme and a consistent set of terminology across ISO standards. So for the 27001 series, we're concerned about um, an information security management system. Mm -hmm. um, basically, it lays out uh, planning for the organization to make sure that you are planning appropriately. Um, you have leadership buy-in. You have things like the scope statement we talked about uh, nailed down. You've got internal review activities set up, and you're focused on continual improvement. Um, the rest of the controls you talked about in NXA will fit into the uh, like workings that the ISMS creates. So the meeting cadences, the you know uh, reviews you're doing, all of the like risk assessment activities, which we'll talk about later. Um, those are all going to cover making sure that your NXA controls are implemented and in place. Um, the IRC that you mentioned is a group, uh, we call it the Information Risk Council. Um, that's a, a group that we've kind of come up with because what you'll find with ISO is uh, you really need not just top management leadership buy-in, but you need buy-in across the organization. Um, and what that means is getting a group of individuals together who are from various departments, different functional areas. It's really the group that makes logical sense to come together and make risk-based decisions. And that group, uh, the IRC, is going to handle a lot of the uh, like strategic initiative uh, decision-making that goes on in the business. Typically, they're keeping executive management uh, informed and updated. They're pulling them in as needed. Um, they're not there every single time necessarily, but uh, usually they're you know visiting with the IRC on a quarterly or a semi-annual basis. Um, they're also looking downward, right? They're tracking the implementation of controls, any risks that have been identified. They're following up with uh, risk treatment owners and providing updates to the rest of the functional areas of the business that are members of the IRC. Um, at the end of the day, the way that we see this is the IRC plays a very critical role in a functional um, and successful implementation of the ISMF. Mm. Yeah, I think about it like if you think about what is being audited during an ISO 27001 audit, the natural tendency it seems like is to focus heavily on the controls. You know, if, if we're being audited and I don't know a lot about it, I think well, they're going to look at a lot of technical stuff. That's the nature of the audit. But probably half the audit is over this information security management system, which is how you govern the organization. You already mentioned some of the things like leadership structure, having an IRC, having a decision-making body, executing risk assessments, appropriately staffing and resourcing and training your organization. And that's a heavy focus of the audit, not just the technical stuff. 
So it's important that if you're preparing for an external audit, a download the document because it's very clear if you download the standard how how big of a focus the ISMS is and think of how you're going to structure that governance structure. Yeah, one thing I'll add about the IRC that I've seen my clients do that is super uh, useful, empowering, effective, efficient. Um, if you include executive management in the IRC meetings at the appropriate times, what you can do is actually leverage that time together to talk about things like improved tooling or uh, resource needs, right? You can actually pitch um, business plans around uh, spending money to executive management in a forum that makes sense versus coming together as a group deciding you need to spend more money but not having the opportunity to actually request that without an additional, you know, outside of that meeting, um, you know, touch point with uh, executive management. And typically you kind of have to start from scratch. So it's usually better to present the idea or the need for resources around information security as a part of the IRC meeting. That way everyone leaves that meeting on the same page, whether it was a thumbs up or a thumbs down on spending and why. Um, everyone is able to give their input at the relevant time. Um, and it's not just on the shoulders of like one or two project managers to go get that approval later on. So usually you just have a little bit more of a, an effective uh, request for resources during the IRC meeting as well. Yep, there's a lot of benefit. So, so next myth kind of dispel is the other question that comes up a lot with clients is um, when they go to pursue ISO certification, they often say, we just need policies. Do you have policy templates? We'll adopt the templates or you know, we'll sign off on the templates and change nothing else and we'll be ready for certification. And I think that's derived from perhaps in years past there being poor quality audits performed where basically they look at the policy if it's in the policy they check the box they don't look to see if an organization is actually following that policy so can you talk about your experience I mean you've been through dozens of audits on behalf of clients at, at this point what's the balance of the audit being policy driven versus the audit being you know they're looking to see you're actually following policy yeah so um, when you get into the domain uh, controls, the Annex A controls or, or the controls that are spelled out in 27,002, um, there's 14 domains. And a domain is something like human resources security, asset management, operation mm -hmm. security. And what you'll notice is that each of those domains typically starts with some version of policy, right? It's do you have a policy governing this? But then you have a lot of controls below that that are essentially testing not just your policy, but the implementation of that policy. And one thing that uh, somewhat surprises uh, clients, I think, when they get into these audits um, is the level of rigor around testing your own policy. So you may have a policy that meets all of the ISO standards, uh, but the evidence that they're going to want to see is the actual implementation of that policy. So you may have a secure development policy, but if you don't have development documentation like tickets and things mm -hmm. like that to evidence that that policy is actually um, effectively implemented, um, then it's, it's going to result in a lot yeah. of gaps. So the policy is really just the starting point that kind of paints the picture of what the auditor is going to want to see. Yeah, one trend that I've noticed too is I think, you know, over the last five years for sure, is that auditors are becoming more and more stringent. So I think the audit approach is just getting better. And then the governing bodies who are auditing the auditors are also becoming more stringent. So yeah. I would say every year we see a, a further ratcheting up of the level of specificity that these auditors are going into to achieve certification, which I think as an industry is a good thing. But when it comes to thinking through that audit burden, 
it could be yeah. an intimidating thing. So we're yeah. things like policy, give me screenshots, give me configuration settings, um, and, and doing Im implementing a compliance program without it becoming overly burdensome for the business is somewhat of an art. So you have to find that balance and it's difficult to do that. Absolutely. And the thing about policy is it may seem like a kind of a, a time sinked, right? Uh, as an executive um, or, or a top leader in a functional area of the business to spend the time to make sure that that policy is accurate. Um, but what I tell my clients is, look, the policy is management's intent. If you'll take the time and actually put down on paper what you want the program to look like, um, it's not just good yeah. for the posture of the program. It actually empowers others to go implement your intent as management. And yep. so it provides a guide for those uh, you know, middle managers and individual contributors that are out there in the wild taking your policy and applying it to their day-to-day -day processes. And it actually creates a much more uh, organic program that just, just functions properly by its very nature um, versus just going and downloading some templates and saying, all right, well, let's fit our program to this templated policy. It's quite the opposite. You should fit the policy to your program. Uh, yep. so that it makes sense for your business and people aren't having to bend over backwards just to meet policy. Yeah, it also forces management to come up with a strategy. You know, I have to actually think through how I want to implement this at my business and write that down. So there's a lot of value of policy, and I think ISO is heavy on that. Um, next couple tips is when it comes to getting certified, there's, there's several work streams that I think come as a surprise to our clients. Either they're more work, than they predicted, they're a bigger piece of the external audit than were predicted, or there are additional costs um, that they weren't counting on as part of the certification audit. So first one I want to walk through is the risk assessment process. So I think sometimes organizations conflate a gap assessment and a risk assessment, and they don't understand how to use or get value out of a risk assessment, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that. Can you talk a little bit about the risk assessment requirement how that folds into ISO and how we implement that with clients? Yeah, absolutely. So the risk assessment, um, in terms of the requirements for the risk assessment, if you look at clauses six and clauses eight um, within ISO 27001, you'll see um, kind of the framework, right, of what ISO expects from a risk assessment. But just generally speaking about it, I would say that the risk assessment is probably the hardest piece of ISO to get right. Um, it, it can be one of the most valuable assets to your information security program, um, if not the most valuable asset, because it should basically be um, a, an approach to your program and your business as a whole that identifies risks, puts those risks in front of the right people, and comes up with what we call treatment plans, uh, which are basically action plans to address that risk and to mitigate it down to an acceptable level for the business. Um, this is absolutely critical for an effective program. Um, this is something that it simply cannot be a check-the-box exercise um, if done right. And it's something that I would argue is a, com a competitive differentiator. Um, if you do this right, you're, you're genuinely going to manage risk within your business better than your competitors. Um, and if you can get the ISO uh, you know, standard way of doing a risk assessment right in a way that your business is actually benefiting from that exercise, um, I would say that you've, you've really nailed the kind of the spirit of the whole ISO framework mm -hmm. because you'll notice that word risk is just continuously uh, peppered throughout the standard. Um, many controls make references back to the risk assessment. For instance, like supplier relationships, it wants to make sure that 
you know, if, uh, if a supplier's business with you changes in some significant way that you're doing a risk assessment on that supplier to make sure that there's not any additional considerations that you should be taking. Yep. Um, there, there's just a lot that goes into the risk assessment, and it can be something that uh, really makes or breaks the program. Yeah, I think risk assessment is a powerful tool for a security professional to drive decision making because it gives you an opportunity to make sure that the security program is in alignment with the business objectives. So the decisions that you make in way of security naturally align to what the business is trying to accomplish. Um, also, it is a, the heart of an external audit. So just pure getting certified, one of the most heavily scrutinized artifacts that's produced for the audit is that risk assessment because they're looking to see that you did a risk assessment, it was in alignment with some best practices like ISO 27005, and that it in some ways informs decision making at the organization. So a, a big effort. I think it's easy to fill out a spreadsheet that you download off the internet and call that your risk assessment, but that's not the spirit or intent of ISO, so you need to plan on spending some time and thought and how you're going to approach that. Which brings me to the second piece that I think is probably even more surprising to organizations when it comes to budgeting and considering how they're going to approach an ISO program. And that's Clause 9.2, the internal audit. So Sawyer, can you talk about why this surprises organizations and, and what they need to do to meet the internal audit requirement? Yeah, absolutely. So Clause 9 of ISO 27001 is broken into three pieces. Um, 9.1 is a self-assessment. So that's where you basically look at your program um, as the stakeholders and the control operators and you evaluate it against you know, some set of predetermined metrics. Um, clause 9.3 is management review. So that's where top management is showing an involvement in that review process and they're looking at a handful of uh, really specific things about the program. Yep. Clause 9.2 is uh, something that uh, we call the internal audit, as you alluded to. It requires uh, an objectively independent party that is qualified to audit a management system do an audit of the uh, ISMS and the implementation of the controls. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that this is surprising to a lot of organizations is, is, is several things. One, a lot of times they mistake the self-assessment as the internal audit. Um, you can't objectively be independent if you're operating the controls that you're auditing. Um, so that is one thing that can surprise clients. Uh, the other is um, they may think that the uh, risk assessment, as you talked about earlier, um, you know, sitting down and trying to figure out what the gaps are and putting those in a spreadsheet and calling those risks, they may think that's an internal audit. That can also be um, you know, a big surprise when they get to a stage one uh, audit of the external audit exercise. Um, a lot of organizations um, don't realize that you have to have truly an independent third party, um, you know, come in and do this internal audit exercise. Um, so they, you know, mistake a lot of internal activities for meeting that, uh, that clause requirement. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things too is you'll have, uh, often we've seen an organization have a staff member, like a security team member, do the internal audit and sometimes they even do a decent job you know they'll go through every control and then the external auditor will say well this person is not independent they're operating all these controls they can't assess themselves and then you as an organization realize that you have to incur additional cost by engaging a third-party firm to be your internal auditor because you can't do that internally so that's where like a lot of organizations will engage risk 360 say i have to have an internal audit 
and if it's late in the game, it feels awkward to do that, and it was unexpected budget. Um, but just count on that if you're a firm. Find find a resource to get that done because that will come up on the external audit. I think they can the external auditors consider that a key driver in the health of a program. The internal audit piece. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's basically a, like uh, the way I think about it is it's like your scrimmage game, right? It's a, it's a way of uh, kind of testing your program um, because you can have you know anything come up on an internal audit report that does not necessarily have any bearing on the external audit report. Um, and so if you treat an internal audit uh, appropriately, it can help you uh, be very successful during the external audit. Um, it can help, you know, um, minimize the number of what they call nonconformities that come up because you get a really a good look at your program prior to really putting it to the test with a certifying body. Yep, absolutely. Um, so we've talked a lot about the ISMS or the management system. We talked about the IRC, which is the governance structure that you form, the risk assessment, the drive strategy, and then the internal audit that helps monitor the program. Those are all elements of the ISMS. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the technical things that we see at clients and some of the common pitfalls. So I have some ideas in mind that I want to talk through, but if you could narrow it down to two or three things that um, we see almost everywhere we go that from a technical perspective, always present a, a challenge to a client and people considering ISO certification should maybe also consider to get ahead of it. Are there some technical challenges that, that you see as a pattern out that come up a lot? Yeah. Um, this actually has been a very um, widespread issue since um, the SolarWinds uh, breach that we have probably all heard and read about. Uh, basically, a lot of companies have, um, and this is verbatim coming from a, a systems engineer I know that is in a company that's dealt with this, um, they have the Cadillac uh, or the premium brand of all the tools that are looking at logging. Um, they're logging everything under the sun, right? Um, they have all the data they need to make any kind of risk-based or incident response-based decisions they need. Where they fall short is setting up appropriate uh, logic on top of that logging to alert people when something needs to be reviewed manually. So sometimes I think the short way of saying this is we fall victim to too much automation um, and not enough uh, customization of that uh, automated set of tools to help us make good, manual, human-based, risk-based decisions. Um, that's one I see come up time and time again. And so, you know, a lot of times we ask someone, hey, can you talk, tell me about your logging and auditing uh, activities? And they pull up some tool and they say, look, here's, the, here's all the logs, you know, tell me what you want to see. And I say, uh, you know, I want to see where um, these logs triggered some action. What do you mean? Well, I want to see that this actually, you know, uh, played out in some way within the organization and that these logs are meaningful to you because I know you're not sitting here reviewing millions of lines of logs yeah. so what is it that you have configured to alert you and your team on genuinely risky behavior or logs um, and that's one that, that comes up a lot so so make sure that when you purchase tools like a sim right um, that you're spending the time and that you have the resources prior to purchasing that tool to customize it and implement it in a way that's going to be useful to you um, the advice I'd give is don't fall victim to implementing tools just to kind of fit into the compliance box and get through an audit. That's one of the worst investments you can make. Uh, buy tools that fit your program and that make sense for you as a business. Um, make ISO fit your business. Don't fit your business to ISO. And definitely think about that from a tools perspective. Yep. 
there's a couple that come up for me. Um, one of the most difficult things that we see, and this is rampant at uh, like high growth tech companies, uh, which is endpoint device management, because we see a variety of organizations either do bring your own device where everybody has their own laptop, or they ha don't have a standard uh, issue laptop or methodology for onboarding employees. So laptops become the wild west where there's no antivirus, there's no configuration management, there's yeah. no standard procedures on how they handle that. And laptops are one of the most important attack vectors for most organizations because it's your largest attack service, especially in modern technology companies when there where there is not a traditional network. So you have all these engineers and employees accessing company resources, whether that be SaaS products or source code or whatever that might be, with an endpoint. And if that endpoint becomes compromised, then that is the attack uh, vector into the overall organization. So. That tends to be um, a big cultural change for many of our clients in that they uh, love working on their own device and configuring it any way they want, but there's a certain formality that comes to play when you have to start provisioning laptops, putting anti-malware software in there, maybe putting, um, removing administrative rights, that type of thing, but it's a really important part of ISO. Um, so prepare for that if you're an organization that doesn't have control on your um, endpoint devices. Yeah, the, the last one I'll mention is around vulnerability management. Um, so many companies are running good scans, right? They have good tools in place to identify vulnerabilities across their, their assets. Um, but where they struggle is managing those assets through to completion um, or, or through to complete remediation. So, you know, I may run a scan. Let's say I do monthly scans, right? I run a scan and I present a report of, you know, 100 findings to a team. Well, they go out and they do a bunch of patching, they do a bunch of different work, um, and they say, okay, I think I'm good. Well, the next month, maybe they get another report with 80 findings. The problem I see most often is they can't tell you which of those 80 findings were on that first report. And that causes a lot of confusion. And in fact, that causes vulnerabilities to exist for much longer than companies may think that they're there. Because they may mark all 100 of those as fixed because they think they fixed them, but they're not actually doing a validated rescan uh, in between those monthly cycles to ensure that those 100 were actually, you know, boiled down to zero. Um, and, and that puts organizations at very, very real material risk. I mean, most of the things that we're seeing in the news um, can be attributed to poor vulnerability management. Yep, vulnerability and patch management for sure. So that's three. Those are three technical challenges. Um, endpoints and vulnerability management being, being key to those. Um, next question is, um, I think when we implement ISO programs for many of our clients, they, they walk into it thinking that they have to have a perfect program with zero gaps or they can't obtain certification. And they're often relieved to know that that is not possible and that, that is not the spirit or intent of ISO and thus isn't required to obtain certification. So you can get ISO with known gaps in your program. Um, you just have to know how to balance which gaps are showstoppers and which are not. So can you talk about that? Why is that the case, Sawyer? What has been your experience sitting on the, across the table from auditors and their acceptance of known program gaps and that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. This this comes up probably most frequently of all the topics we've discussed. Um, 
the, the information security management system is the most important piece. Um, auditors are looking to see not that every single control is implemented without any flaws, um, but they're looking to see that you have a program that can handle maturing a security uh, program. So basically, you know, the, the inputs into this, uh, this overall program are the governance and the risk management portions. So you may have a control that you have a, you know, minimum implementation of because that's what makes sense at your level or your stage of the business. You may only be a 50-person organization. And so you might manage, um, you know, mobile devices very differently than, say, a 1,000-person company, right, because you have a, a much smaller span of control. Um, and that's okay with ISO. ISO is meant to be right-sized to your business. Um, you may also have uh, controls that just simply are not implemented. Um, they may be things that are of very low risk to your business for some reason. Um, you know, one that comes to mind a lot is um, some of the asset management controls because a lot of companies are just purely virtual. All of their production infrastructure lives in the cloud somewhere. Um, you know, they're even letting their employees buy their own laptops and then remote into some, you know, remote desktop type uh, application um, like VMware or Citrix that's out there um, to actually, you know, do their work from a VM that's in the control of the company. Um, and so the endpoint, the laptop itself, actually doesn't man matter a whole lot there. So there may be certain controls that you either totally scope out um, because they're not relevant to your program, or there may be controls that you have known gaps in, and that's where the, uh, the implementation of that risk management program comes into play. The auditor is going to want to see okay, there's a known gap here, how aware of this are you? How aware of this is your top management team, is your risk committee? How have you handled it? What plans do you have in place to address it, if any? Um, who within the business um, you know, has mitigating or compensating controls that can uh, be taken into account to lessen the risk of the lack of this control? Um, so there's a lot of ways to evaluate, again, the, the risk that's posed by the lack of a control being implemented. And these are all things that can come up during that external audit. Um, and it can be something that, you know, may seem like it's going to be a very big problem. Um, but if you have all the appropriate measures in place um, and you're continually improving, as Clause 10 requires you to, um, then it's something that um, may not be a hindrance at all in the external yep. audit. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is you can have gaps in your program, but the spirit of ISO is looking for a phrase that you'll hear often, which is man management's commitment to continuous improvement. So if you've self-identified those gaps, you've risk-ranked them, and you have an action plan in place to correct your program over time, the auditor will gain a whole lot of comfort in that because they realize a program can't be perfect. Conversely, if they find something that you had no clue about and it's high risk, well, that's going to result in a major nonconformity and could be a showstopper. So, important factor. Um, next thing I want to talk about is um, the whole ecosystem of auditing, because it can be confusing. In, in our space, there are consultants, there are certifying bodies that do the external audit, there's the individuals receiving the audit, and there's ANAB who, and others who govern the, the ISO certification process. Can you talk a little bit about selecting a certifying body? Who, who are the certifying bodies? How do we know who they are? How do you select one? Yeah, absolutely. So there are some fantastic certifying bodies out there. Um, my first piece of advice is shop around. 
um, talk to them, make sure that you have a good idea and understanding of who they are, um, what their process looks like, you know, timelines, cost, all of these different things that are going to be very important factors in your decision making. Um, second to that is uh, making sure that you're selecting, um, I'll say like a reputable certifying body. So uh, there you know, are various ways to check if a certifying body is in fact a governed certifying body. Um, there's you know, things you can do to make sure that they are accredited, um, that they have all the appropriate credentials in place to you know, do that certifying, uh, external certifying work that you're purchasing. Um, if you have a you know, company you've talked to that sounds kind of uh, small, maybe they're not very like, uh, you know, well-known on the internet or you don't see a lot of like, information on them, um, I would be leery of those. Um, the ones that you're going to you know, recognize the names of are the ones that are going to be some of the best certifying bodies to choose from for a reason. Um, I, I would say make sure that the certifying body you're selecting is one that you feel comfortable and good about presenting to the stakeholders um, because their logo, their name is going to be attached to that certification for the three-year cycle. Um, so, you know, it, do your research, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and if you're curious, here in the U.S. that's predominantly governed by ANAB, I believe there's 14 certifying bodies currently. Um, you can go to ANAB's registry website, so just Google ISO 27001 certifying bodies. It'll come up, and you can sort by ISO 27001. Like I said, there's 14 or 15 firms. Of those 14 or 15, I believe there's four to five of them that are truly qualified to do security-related assessments you can when you see that list of 14 or 15 you can go to their websites and it is very clear which one of those four or five specialize in information security i think that's the immediate way to shorten that list and then begin vetting each of them when you're vetting those firms ask questions like how many iso certifying certifications do you do get the resumes of the individuals that will be executing the work to see if they're qualified to do security work and then ask for some references so that you can speak to people who have been the other side of an audit and received quality work. And lastly, you might even want to ask around to your clients and your vendors to see which certify, certifying bodies they respect. Because at the end of the day, the certification itself is going to have that brand on it and you're going to be comfortable that they're not a fly-by-night and that they're going to be recognized you know, as legitimate in the industry. If all that fails, you can call me or Sawyer and we can tell you who those five are. I don't want to put anybody's name on blast on yeah. Um, last question here is, um, I think people see different forms of reports. People see pen test reports, people see SOC 2 reports, high trust assessments, and then there's the ISO certification. So what does that look like? What does an ISO certification look like and how transparent is that document? Yeah, the, uh, the, there's a few things that get delivered to you at the end of uh, an external audit. Um, so you'll go through stage one, they'll recommend you for stage two, and stage two they'll do an in-depth analysis of the entire program. Um, upon successful completion of stage two, they will recommend you for certification. And what that means is they basically take your scoping statement, which right back to the beginning of the presentation is very, very important to nail because that's what's going to be presented to your clients as the scope of what was audited. They're going to plaster that onto a one-pager that has their signature, their logo, their accreditation information, there's like a credential ID, um, basically things that create a single page document that shows you are ISO 27001 certified 
yep. um, within this scope. That is typically handed out to any and all prospects, customers, uh, stakeholders, partners, investors, whoever it is that care to see that document. Um, you're usually handing that out. Yep, One so you're gonna wanna be much more protective of um, is the actual report. Um, not because there's things in there you don't want people to see, but because it's just you know the very detailed information about your system. Um, so that may be something that's appropriate for some parties, but that's not something you're gonna like send to anyone that asks for it. Yep, so it's a one-pager. I mean, that's the bottom line. So I think that's, there's a pro and a con to something being a one-pager. The pro is there's low, low risk in handing it out. Like most organizations, you're, you're not gonna give up anything proprietary necessarily by making that available to organizations. The downside is most organizations aren't getting a lot of assurance out of that certification either because it's not very revealing. So right. what I'll often recommend is to prepare a document package that you can hand out based on your, your need. So that might include the certification itself, your one pager. That might include the statement of applicability which is all of your controls and whether they're in scope and applicable that adds an extra layer of transparency and then perhaps even your um, like a vendor transparency package where you spell out in detail a lot of things that you think will be relevant to your potential customers and that you want to be disclosed to them just for the sake of assurance and visibility and you know some firms may only get the certification some firms you might want to give the whole package to because they need and deserve that level of transparency but that's an additional tool set in your arsenal when you're communicating with third parties and customers out there. So. Absolutely. Cool, so that's 10, Sawyer. I, I appreciate your time. I hope this added some value to individuals you know, in their journey of ISO certification and look forward to talking to you next time. Yes, yeah, sounds good, see ya. See ya.